0: 702. Family matters,
1: And today on our Family Matters feature, I want us to talk about grief. How do you navigate the journey of grief? People handle it differently. Right? There's no one way to go about it. But I believe that there are things all of us can do to help us navigate the journey of grief. And that's what we're going to talk about. All of us have experienced grief at some point in our lives. And it's so complex, right? And as much as working through grief can be such a complex and painful process, it's necessary to ensure your future emotional and and physical well-being. You may feel like you don't want to go through the emotions, but at some point, you will be forced to. And that's the thing about grief. You cannot not go through it. You can postpone it, sure. Find ways to distract yourself. But for you to be okay and at peace with your loss, you have to go through grief. That doesn't mean you won't ever feel sad again for your loss because it's a journey. Yeah, There there may be other triggers along the way, which is why knowing how to navigate this journey of grief is so important. How have you dealt with your grief? How did you navigate it? In your experience, have you stopped grieving? We know about the five stages, right? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Did you go through all these stages? Let me know what your experiences have been around grief on 011-883-0702. That's where you can call me or send me a WhatsApp voice note on zero seven two seven zero two one seven zero two. 702 1702 Jeannie uh, is a clinical psychologist who will be guiding us through this conversation. She's joined us via Zoom. And as we go along uh, with Jeannie, I'll take your calls and your WhatsApps as well. Maybe you are struggling yourself to go through this journey of grief. What questions do you have for Jeannie? Let's see if we we can help you out. Jeannie, welcome back to the show. Good morning.
2: Hi, Clement. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Let's maybe start by looking at the psychology of grief. You know just as the as the starter to this conversation so we get to understand what we're dealing with here so when we talk about grief what exactly is grief
2: such a, a beautiful introduction that you gave clement around the grieving process and um, loss is part of life um, and that at every in everybody's life they will eventually come to a point of losing somebody that they love or something that they love whether it's A a human or an animal that they love, a relationship that they have invested in and mean something in their life. Eventually, some we will experience loss as part of life. Um, and as you've identified, you know, the original work of Elizabeth Kubler Ross is kind of what we're all pretty much aware of in terms of understanding the psychology of grief um, and how grief actually sits in our bodies. It sits in our nervous systems um, as unprocessed data. Um, until we have the capacity to process it. And that relies on work that we do within ourselves and also work that we do within relationships, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well. I do just want to say that today's topic is so important and so sensitive. I do just want to um, just give listeners a heads up that we are talking about something that might be quite triggering or activating for them um, because it's something that is very real and very vivid for a lot of people. So it is an important topic that we've got to handle with a lot of respect and care and dignity because it is such a difficult one. And I think what makes it so difficult you know, um, is, we'll talk about the work that we've got to do inside, but also relationally, is that as, as people in our culture, we're not really trained how to deal with death. We're not really trained what to say to one another um, because none of us knows for a fact what happens when you die. It's um, we, a lot of people have got beliefs about what happened when you die, but nobody knows for a fact what happens when you die. Um, There's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknowns. It's very big, it's very big for us. Um, And we don't really have the capacity in our human brains or our human minds and even in our relationships to meaningfully hold space for something that is just so big. And so it's a very tentative offering of space that we hold um, not only in our talk today, but also in our relationships out there when working through grief. But we'll talk a little bit more about that on the interpersonal level a bit later. But in terms of the internal work, the psychology of grief, as you identified earlier, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work was probably the most famous. Um, And it's interesting to note that originally her work was um, punctuated around uh, facing our own mortality, that when we think about our own mortality, we go through these phases. Um, But people have identified that they are relevant also when looking at other people's death and dying and grief. And these are, as you correctly identified earlier, denial, anger, anger bargaining, depression, and acceptance. It's um, important to notice, however, that these don't always occur in that order and they're not linear. Mm. It's not like, okay, well, I know I've got a, a week of denial and then it's going to be three weeks of anger and then I'll go through the bargaining phase and then... Six months, it'll be a bit of depression, and then I'll come to acceptance. Um, it doesn't mean that at all. They can come at, they can be more than one presence at a, at a time. They can come in waves. They can circle back. But these are typically the emotional experiences that people go through when they when they're facing grief, and what what that looks like to everybody can be very very different and very very individual, um, especially around the one of acceptance. Um, and later, um, David Kessler went on to expand on this model by talking about the sixth stage of grief, which he said is finding meaning. And mm. um, he says that when we go through these six stages, finding the meaning in what has happened is incredibly important. Um, the finding the significance of the person's life who's passed, the impact they had on us, the lessons we can learn from their death, and finding meaning and bringing a sense of purpose. And help individuals navigate their, their grief journey is the focus of that very good book. It's called The Sixth Stage of Grief um, and very helpful for people. Um, but I think it's also very important to remember that uh, meaning-making is something that happens in our cortical brain. It's something that happens in our higher order brain. And it's very difficult to get there when we're still actively traumatized from the, the death of the person. Yeah. Um, and that's why for grief and healing from grief has got three other dimensions that I'm sure we'll talk about.
1: Yes. Um, so... You've mentioned that, you know, grieving, it's, you're not going to go through the stages in that order where also it's going to be one week of feeling this way and another three months, three months of feeling the other way. Um, what about people, uh, Jeannie, who, yes, this loss happens and they grieve and they are in this dark hole for whatever period, period of time. And then over the next five years, they seem to have accepted the loss and they found a way to deal with it only for, I don't know, five years, eight years later, for there to be a particular trigger and then they're back into that dark hole. Um, How do people then navigate that where they thought, but I thought I was almost at peace with what's happened and I found a way to navigate this journey um, of grief. But the way I've responded to this trigger is as though this is as fresh as two hours ago.
2: Beautiful. I think there's two dimensions there. The first dimension is for me, um, grief is cumulative. So grief is something that actually increases over time because you miss the person more and more over time as the, as life goes on. Um, and one of the most difficult things when you do lose somebody is how the world just keeps going and the world just keeps turning and your whole world has ended. It feels like time should stand still. How can... People still be going to checkers, you know. How can people still go to work? How can the sun still be shining? My world has ended. And the one thing we don't have control over is we don't have control over over moving forward. Um, Time carries on. And so when that happens, we actually lose more and more contact with the person who's died. So the loss is cumulative. So, for example, when you lose a child, you don't just lose a one-year-old. You lose a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a 12-year-old. Um, When you lose a parent, you don't just lose your parent when you are 16, you lose your parent when you matriculate, you lose your parents again when you get married, you lose a parent again when you become a parent yourself. Um, If you lose a a sibling or a partner, it's as you'd go through all those different life stages that this person is not participating in physically anymore, Mm. you lose them again. So the loss is cumulative. You lose out on who they, what was still going to happen in their lives. You lose out on their presence in your life. So the loss is cumulative. So I think that's one aspect yeah. of the loss coming back in waves. And it comes back in waves, almost like layers of an onion. There's, there's layers and layers. And grief is something that you can't hold all the time. It's very When it first happens, it's like a piece of very sharp glass um, that's in your heart. And, and every time your heart beats and every time you move, it cuts, it hurts. So you can't hold it all the time, you have to put it down. And that's why um, Kubler-Ross included denial there. If you had to hold it all the time, you'll burn yourself out. So you have to put it down and pick it up and put it down and pick it up. And in that putting down and picking up process, in engaging and disengaging, engaging and disengaging with it, it's kind of like, becomes like a smooth piece of glass. You know how glass gets smoothed out in the ocean and becomes that like, like almost like a pebble. And it becomes a smooth piece of glass, It just sits a little bit heavy in your heart and you only feel it sometimes. And it depends on the way you move, and it depends on what's happening or what, what other stuff is taking up space in your heart. You might become aware of it, yeah. which then brings me to the second dimension of what you're mentioning, which is the dimension of trigger. So in terms of a trigger, you can think of your your nervous system like a container. So, you know, we, we, we know a lot about our cardiovascular system and how to keep it healthy. We know a lot about our digestive system and how to keep it healthy, our musculoskeletal system and how to keep it healthy. And what we're understanding more and more about psychology is that the health and the functioning of the nervous system is fundamental to our psychological well-being. So understanding that the nervous system is like a container, its whole its job is to hold information online. Um, that's its job, is to hold information like a container holds liquid. But it's got one rule, and that rule is don't spill. So when the, the liquid in the container is at a manageable level, and we can get liquid out by scooping it out, when we scoop out the liquid, it makes waves, but there's space for the waves to happen without it spilling. But when someone dies, there's a big rock that gets put in that bucket. And sometimes you've got space in that bucket to not be aware of the rock, and you can work around it, you can still put water in. But maybe as time goes on, other rocks are added. So you now lost your one-year-old, but now you've also lost your five-year-old, and now your friend also had a baby, and all of those things. Now more rocks and rocks get added, even around the same grief, the same loss, or other things, work stress, more rocks get added to the bucket, and then like you say, there's a trigger, Suddenly the bucket is full and one more thing gets added. You can hear a song in a particular place or see somebody with a similar name or even just have a a certain smell in the air or a certain time of year. And all of that stuff that's in the bucket overflows Um. and then it can become too much. So it's both on an emotional and psychological relational level in terms of losing more and more of the person over time, but it's also on a neurophysiological level to do with how the nervous system works mm. and how it stores mm. unprocessed data that can become triggered later.
1: Mm. Sure. Um, let, let's uh, take these two voice notes that have come through on oh seven two seven oh two one seven oh two, and then uh, we'll take some calls as well as we continue this conversation around grief.
0: Hi, Clement. You know, thank you for this topic and maybe your guest will be able to help me to understand the type of a person I am. When I'm going through situations, I don't cry. I lost my parents 10 days apart in 2003. I never cried. And that thing worried me. Even today, it still worries me. Though I would cry when I go to other people's funerals. Mm. But I asked myself why I didn't cry for my parents. I love them. We're very happy family. But it just does not come. And then in 2010, my daughter went missing. Also, I didn't cry. But at least there, I had a heart condition which was temporal so at least it does give me an idea that i de- I-, I did feel the pain mm. so please
1: thank yeah. you thank you thank you so much for for that whatsapp voice note let's let's play another one and then i'll have genie respond to both There's another one that's come through on 0727021702. We'll try find it. Um, we're not finding it here, but we'll try. We'll try find it and, and play for you. But Jenny, in the meantime, while we find the other voice note, how do you? How, how does she deal with that? Because she says she really sounds like this is, you know, beginning to really stress her out. She asks herself questions about why she didn't cry, and it's not like she had issues. Even with the parents, or even with the child, when she went missing, is that normal?
2: Yeah, so normal. I just want to um, just extend a whole lot of empathy and compassion to this listener, what she's been through—her um, parents dying ten days apart, and then her daughter going missing—and don't know um, from the voice note if they ever found her daughter. But gosh, what what awful, traumatic experiences this woman has been through. So it's very normal to not cry, and it's got nothing to do with your love or your relationship with the person. Um, When it comes to grief, everything is normal, first of all. Um, But in terms of not crying, so the nerve that manages your survival response is called your vagus nerve. Some people call it your polyvagal nerve. It's got two names. And it has got different zones of responses. So when when we are safe, relaxed, and happy and comfortable, we're in the green zone, and you can think of it like a ladder. The green zone being at the top, and that's what we call the ventral vagal, and that's where we're happy, relaxed, grounded, playful, can learn, etc. Then when we when we start to become more and more stressed, we climb down the polyvagal ladder. When a stressor becomes more of an irritant that the ventral vagal can't deal with, we climb down the polyvagal ladder and we get into our sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight or flight response. And there we might we might cry, we might shake, we might try different things, We might become frantic, we might become aggressive, but we try and we mobilize and activate. We're trying to do something about the problem. But if that doesn't work to solve the problem, then we can climb down into what we call the dorsal vagal response. Um, And the dorsal vagal response is numb. It's frozen, it's freeze, fold and fawn, which is just to cooperate, just to put one foot in front of the other and become almost a bit robotic. Um, So when we're in the dorsal vagal response, some people say it was just incredibly calm in the face of this traumatic event. It's actually the dorsal vagal taking over. Um, It reminds me so much of a friend of mine who who fell off her horse a number of years ago. She fell off her horse and she broke her nose. She didn't realize at first that she broke her nose. And she was busy. They were taking her to the hospital and she felt her face was wet. And she put down the visor and she saw that her nose was sitting on the side of her face. And she just pushed it back into place. And I said, gosh, wasn't it sore? And she said, you know, it was so painful, I didn't feel a thing. So our nervous system has a way of protecting us from overwhelming amounts of pain. Mm. So it's probably because these relationships were so precious and important to you, listener, that your nervous system actually could not hold enough of that pain to be able to cry and dissociate it from it. Um, and not because you didn't care or because there's anything wrong with you, it's actually a built-in survival response it helps to protect us from overwhelming amounts of pain. Now, that also doesn't mean that if you do cry, you don't care. It just depends on what your nervous system, which is outside of your conscious awareness, it sits in our subcortex, we don't have direct access to it, but it's what that part of your brain has decided is the health, is the yeah. safest way for you to overcome this particular thing. And that can be different for everybody,
1: mm.
2: but yeah. that's very normal, very, very normal.
1: Okay. Here's that second uh, voice note.
0: Good morning Clement, Vepa from Rosebank. Um, I want to know this, nah. so if you are grieving after some of your loved one have passed away nah, and uh, you dream about them maybe on daily basis, is it, is it something happens, is it psychological or is it that you are missing them? What is it? Can somebody answer this question for me? Thank you. Uh,
1: thank you for that. Um, Is that normal, uh, Ginny, when you've lost a loved one and you are constantly dreaming about them?
2: Yes, it's also very normal. Um, So some people, depends on your spiritual frame of reference, um, but some people in their spiritual frame of reference um, hold the belief that when you dream about a loved one who's passed away, it's them coming to visit you and reassure you. Um, and make contact with you. Some people held that in their frame of reference. Um, from a purely psychological frame of reference, if we take spirituality out of it, and obviously grief and death and dying are deeply spiritual issues for people. Even if you are atheist, that is still uh, or agnostic or anti-theist, that is still your um, your spiritual handling of grief. Mm. So religious, spiritual, being different things. But from a purely psychological perspective, yeah, you your subconscious processes. Um, data for you when you are sleeping um, so on a deep, deep, deep level your subconscious is processing that data
1: mm.
2: um, becoming aware of the fact that you are dreaming means you're probably not sleeping as deeply as you could which is also very normal after you've been traumatized or gone through grief um, but you yeah, dreaming about the person is very normal and aware mm. of our subconscious processing, um, processing the different aspects of the relationship which we can maybe also then talk about the different dimensions of grief your subconscious processing it in sleeping hours because your subconscious is where we hold all of our um, relational scripts of how to keep ourselves emotionally safe. Yeah. So, And our subconscious forms between the ages of five and nine, um, and it forms at times of trauma. Mm. So obviously very active um, in terms of making rules and blueprints for understanding how the emotional and relational world works. So it will be very active.
1: When we are grieving. Okay, and, and I'm happy for us to get into that before we get to the headlines now at 11:30. Um, uh, Jeannie, how, how important is it uh, for us to identify our grief response, and, and what happens when it's complicated grief, where we are unable to adapt to that grief?
2: Yeah, so um, I think grief is always is always quite complicated. Um, but for me, there are three major dimensions when working through grief that I've identified from my many, many years of working with clients and and really holding that sacred space for people, which is such a, a privilege to be able to walk people through this journey. But what I've learned from my clients in um, the three major dimensions of of grief is the first one is to work through the trauma. Um, so the shock, the pain, the traumatic response in your nervous system is to work through that um, and deal with the trauma of the person's death. Now, this will be very different if you've lost your child versus if you've lost your 100-year-old granny, Um, but the trauma of the person's actual death. The second dimension is working through the relationship with the person who's no longer physically present. Even though they've died, the relationship still continues, but they're not there to physically participate in the relationship anymore. Um, so you might have unfinished emotional business with them that you are now left to deal with alone, or the role that they played in your life is now vacant and readjusting to that vacancy in your life. And we'll talk about that more later, maybe if we do talk about child loss, the special case of child loss. And then finally, the, the third dimension for me is working through everybody else who's left behind, the shuffling of the system. All the, pers- all the people who are involved in a system with a person who's died. Who are each of us now in the system now that this person has died that needs to be navigated? Um, Maybe I'm now the oldest living relative, or maybe I'm now the only parent, or maybe now I'm the only child, or maybe now um, I am the oldest sibling and the parents have died. Can we, can, who are we now that we, we don't have this person in our system anymore because we are defined through our relationships? I relate therefore I am. So when one person dies, the rest of the system has to reshuffle uh, can we stay married now, now that we are no longer parents of a living child, that has to be renegotiated. Yeah. So working through those three different dimensions for me are the broad themes of what clients work through when when facing loss.
1: Sure. Um, you know, uh, Ntams on Twitter, not on Twitter, on the WhatsApp line says, Clement, this therapist is so fantastic. Hey, analogies makes so much sense. I'm wondering if divorce can have the same impact in terms of grief as death. I feel like divorce can be worse than death, especially when you have a child and you have to deal with them constantly. It's like that glass can never be smooth. After the latest in Eyewitness News headlines, Jeannie, I'll give you an opportunity. To respond to this message and and many others that have come through on 072-702-1702. I'll also take your calls. How have you dealt with grief? Mm. How have you adjusted and adapted? You can also call on 011-883-0702. It's exactly 11.30. Between 1 and 3 p.m. 702. Family Matters. All right. So we got a WhatsApp message earlier. Um on our family matters feature and i want to give you jenny an opportunity to respond to that i'm trying to find the whatsapp page here um it's a text message that came through on 072 uh, 702 1702 and that came from a listener who says that how about divorce because they feel like um divorce can be worse than death especially when you have a child and you have to deal with them constantly, it's like that glass can never be smooth, which is an analogy you gave. Um, Jenny, any response to this mm. listener?
2: Yeah, so in some definitely divorce is very much grief because it's also the death of a dream. So when there is a, a, when you get married, you have a dream for a life with a person and you have a dream of who this person is and who they will become. Um, And when you divorce, nobody gets divorced because they they discover that the person is exactly who they thought they were marrying at the beginning, right? So there's the death of the person you married because that person has grown and changed or you've maybe seen different dimensions of them or you've grown and changed and you're no longer the same people anymore and there's now an incompatibility and you've divorced. And I think that the hardest thing with divorce is, is dealing with the death of the dream and dreaming a new dream. So not just replacing... The old dream, not just replacing the characters of the old dream and just um, cutting and pasting people into the old dream, but actually meaningfully dreaming a new dream. And yeah, when there are children involved, I always say when there's a divorce, there's in a marriage, there's three channels of um, there's three channels of business, almost like three sluice gates in a dam. The one is the romantic relationship the husband and wife partner relationship, the one is finances and the one is children, right? And when you go through the death of the the dream, the divorce, that sluice gates of the personal relationship closes. But in the closing process, there's a lot of pain and a lot of grief and a lot of unfinished emotional business that you have with this person, like those three dimensions that I mentioned earlier, earlier the shock, the shame, the trauma of the actual divorce, however that happened, um, the unfinished business with that person, and who am I now? Now that we're no longer, you know, Mike and and Samantha, who are we? Who am I now? Now that I'm no longer Mrs. So-and-so, now that I'm no longer married, who am I? How do I fit in with my social networks anymore? And all of that unfinished business that you would then have worked out with that person, you can't work it out with them anymore because that is now no longer part of the deal. It's no longer part of the deal that you have these talks about us because we're divorced. And then that unfinished business flows through the sluice gates of the children and finances. And it's only if you let that unfinished emotional business with that person Mm -hmm. flow through the children and the finances that that loss can then remain never smoothed. But working through that loss of a dream on a personal level and in other relationships, and I don't mean necessarily romantic relationships, but in other levels of the system and within yourself and the trauma, working through that unfinished business that you have through the loss of the dream and the most important thing. Is dreaming a new dream mm. and I think that this applies with grief as well so yes I had a dream of my life or what it would look like with this person and now they're no longer here there's the death of that dream and in that grieving process I have to dream a new dream and I think that's maybe a little bit about a little bit similar to what you know David Kessler is talking about when he says making meaning which for me would be to dream the new dream yeah. Um. so we spoke about that a little bit with divorce but what that looks like with um with grief um, you know, I've, I've often shared before. I lost my sister when we were teenagers, and um, very suddenly to leukemia. And many years later, it was only just a few years ago. I was at a wedding, and um, and this, the sister, one sister, was getting married, and the other sister was her maid of honor. And um, you know, it was her wedding coming up soon, and it was just this beautiful sister relationship. And you know, acknowledging the loss of the dream of saying, "Oh, that would have been nice. It would have been nice to have that." those experiences with my sister. We, she died when we were both teenagers, so we never got those experiences. So there's the death of the dream. And then dreaming the new dream would be to say, but I can still enjoy this wedding now, even though um, I have will never have that experience with my sister, there's a loss of that dream, but I can still enjoy having friends and I can still enjoy being at this wedding. And it would have been nice, but it's a dream that will never happen.
1: Mm. Um, Mark, you're calling us from Johannesburg. Um, good morning. Hi Clement. Hey, hey Mike. go ahead. I would like to ask your guest. So I recently just lost my dad a month ago. But prior before that, I had lost my aunt in late no October. So it's been grief after grief. It's just been a mess in, in a way. Mm-hmm. So before my aunt passed away and my dad passed away, I kept on having dreams of them passing away eventually it had ended up happening so i don't know Is can we classify having those dreams as a form of grieving in a way okay so is what that when you have the grieving the, i mean the dreams before the passing before the passing can oh. we classify it as in like grieving before the actual grieving or before the person actually passes away oh okay um mac thank you thank you for calling uh genie
2: Thanks. Did um, you say the listener's name is Mark? Yeah, Mark. Mark. Hi, Mark. Um, here, you've been through a lot of loss just recently, having lost your dad um, and your aunt late October, and really that compounded grief and how difficult it is to even just lose one person, but losing two in a very short amount of time. And what I'm hearing from you is that you experienced dreaming about their death um, before they actually passed away, um, and that for you has been quite meaningful in terms of Um, part of your grieving process and I think that you know definitely that can be the case because we are there's so much that our brain is aware of that we are not aware of we get nine million pieces of information into the system in every single one second and it's uh, the job of our nervous system to sort that information out into terms of what is relevant for our conscious mind and other different parts of our subcortex as well so there's a lot that we're aware of that we're not consciously aware of, and that we call neurosection, which is the talking of two nervous systems together. Uh, so from a spiritual from a spiritual point of view, absolutely, your soul knows before you know that you're going to die. Um, but from a neuroscience point of view, what's happening in your nervous system might be communicated outside of conscious awareness. And I can hear that it's been very meaningful and symbolic for you that um, you had these dreams of them passing, and that gave your nervous system a bit of an opportunity to prepare for it. Now that doesn't necessarily mean for, for other listeners that if you dream of someone passing that they will die, um it's just it's so personal and so individual and so relevant for this particular person that it helps them with their grieving process and forms part of their grieving process in terms of preparing. And I think on a subconscious level, we are constantly preparing mm. um for the loss of, of of our loved ones because we are aware on a subconscious level, that um, that people do, that, that lives do come to an end, and that's part of what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross calls denial, is that we can push us out of our conscious awareness. And when somebody dies, that lovely soft warm blanket of denial gets taken away from us because we always think terrible things can only happen to other people. Like mm. the beautiful listener earlier, you said her daughter went missing. We kind of think, well, that kind of thing can only happen to other people. So that lovely soft warm blanket of denial gets taken away from us And we have to face the cold, hard reality that it can happen to us too. Um, And then we no longer have that denial and might start to become more and more present of mind where we think about it either consciously or we dream about it. It's also important to remember sometimes dreams are very symbolic. Um, Sometimes dreams are very literal. um, depends on what it is that you're working through. And sometimes dreams are very symbolic. Um, and it can be just really the fear of losing the person that we're working through, mm. um, or it can be, and that might not be that they don't die for a very long time or even in your lifetime, but for Mark, we can hear that he was so tuned to his aunts and his dad um, on a neuroception level that he, his nervous system even started preparing him before they died that they were going to die.
1: Yeah, yeah. Jenny, I'm going to read some WhatsApp texts that have come through. Um, but, but I want you to also, you know, start getting ready to tell us about how, how, how do we readjust? What can we do to go through this journey of grief? Um, and, and be able to cope well? Um, if, if you can, please. Uh, in the meantime, let me just read some of the WhatsApp texts that have come through. Hi, Clement. You know, this is what I tweeted this morning. And I quote here, I've been trying to regain my mental health equilibrium since the death of my mom on October 15th, 2019, end quote. I don't cope well. Days aren't the same. My life hasn't been the same. And I don't know how to go on with my life. Um Anonymous, I'm so sorry to, to hear about that. Um, and and maybe the tips that Jenny will share with us Will help in, in just helping you Find your way of grieving And navigating that journey Another person says Clement, my mom died 15 years ago I really struggled at the beginning Then I accepted that the pain Will remain with me for as long as I'm here on earth So I just live with it I go through dark moments even now But it's better than the first three years This may sound paradoxical But I find some comfort in my grief, uh, this pain to me is the most tangible thing remaining between my mother and myself. Oh wow, anonymous! What what a way um, um, to 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 look at it. Another person says hi, Clem. This is so true. Trigger has hit me after six years, and I really don't know why. I don't miss the person. I've continued with my life, but all of a sudden. If I see couples together, it hurts like crazy. Crazy. I've been on my own for six years. I would like to remain anonymous, please. Um, another one's Clement, I lost my mom two years ago. And some days it feels like I am not grieving enough. Is that normal? Uh, that's Tiffany in Centurion. What is grieving um, enough? And Jeannie, is that normal for Tiffany to feel that way? And please, can you just help us with what we can do to adjust? How do we go through this journey of grief so that we can cope with it.
2: Please, all these people um, for sharing just so courageously their experiences and I'm sure that there's so many people listening in that can resonate and relate to what, you, what you're what all sharing. Um, yes, Tiffany, that is very normal because um, we, if we have to hold it all the time, we will become very worn out. So very, it's like saying, you know, can I run the comrades every day? It's very hard for our nervous system. So you will pick it up and you'll put it down. And like that other um, that other um, listener said, um, she finds comfort in her grief, the tangible thing remaining. So pain means we're alive, right? So that having that pain keeps that relationship alive. So Tiffany Yaa, in those days where the grief, your, your nervous system is part of the grief, you will feel that disconnect from your mom and feel, I'm not grieving enough. She was so important in my life. Am I doing enough to honor her passing? Am I, am I grieving her enough? So you're definitely very, very normal. And it just has really got to do with what your nervous system can tolerate and not to do with the importance of the person in your life at all. Um, that, you are know, being triggered there by looking at couples, um, I would say that, that's, that you're ready to dream the new dream, right? So you don't miss the person that you said, listener. You don't miss the person. But now seeing couples, you've been alone for six years. It's probably that, that longing for that kind of relatedness, um, dreaming the new dream. And the person who passed away being your last known um, last known relationship, last known solution to your your psyche for that kind of of interaction, that kind of dream, will then feel that that loss and that grief. So it sounds like you're ready to dream a new dream after these six years and the work that you've done in your grieving process. And then trying to gain regain um, mental health equilibrium after my mom passing away. <clears throat> I think that there's three there's three dimensions. And I spoke about earlier in terms of working through the trauma, working through your relationship with that person, and also working through redefining relationships with everybody else. But in order to make that a little bit more tangible, I'll say that it's got to do with, with three aspects of taking care of yourself, which is the first one is resourcing. Um, so resourcing is making more space in your nervous system. So it's making the container bigger, uh, making the container bigger. And one of the most important resources that we have as people is connection. Um, So it's very difficult when you're grieving. You want to isolate because that's what we do when we're in pain is we isolate and we withdraw. But it's very important to be around people who you can have meaningful contact with, Um, so people who know how to provide emotional support and who don't try to do what we call corrective listening, which is try to make you feel better and try to take your pain away by reframing your grief and loss for you, but rather people who can hold and respect your pain Um, and be there with you without judgment or without trying to fix or change it. Um, As um, the person who said, in the comfort in the grief and allowing those emotions to roll like a wave from beginning, middle to end, uh, by having space for them, we can then process those emotions. When emotions get interrupted, it's like a stack of dominoes that gets interrupted. Those dominoes that don't fall, get stay in our nervous system and take up more and more space of the container. So having resources um, through connection, meaningful connection, Resourcing through um, through your health, removing yeah. your body, resourcing through therapy, um, also um, through actually going to therapy for the trauma of the loss. Um, so therapy for brain-based therapy for trauma is incredibly important because that capsule of unprocessed data will sit there and take up space, and so you work with it, and then finally making new filters for the container that decide what information to come in and what information to not come in is very important there of, okay, what am I going to allow in my life and what am I not going to allow in my life now that I've had this experience of death and losing this person. So looking after yourself in in terms of your mental health means looking after both your internal climate, um, so your nervous system and your physical health, but it also is your interactional or relational climate. So making sure that you are surrounded by people and engaging with people that have Mm. got the relational tools and skills to meaningfully support you.
1: Yeah. Hi, Clement. This is Christine Elizabeth. Thank you for bringing up this topic. I lost my dad and during the funeral, I didn't get enough chance to grieve because I was running around with the funeral arrangement. So I had to be strong. So what happened is that every time I go back home to visit my mom, I would cry. It happened for more than six years now. I really struggled with it till I got counseling. I was daddy's baby. Um, and I think counseling also helps um, a lot, especially um, when you were very close with that person. And and Ginny, that's another important element, right? Where, when the loss happens, there are so many things that preoccupy us, including the organizing of the funeral. And when you are, in, especially the, the first born or the elder at home, You've got to somehow be strong. And then after the funeral, when it's all over, then it almost all comes crashing down um, on you. How can you balance the two where you know this is, you are required to show up as an elder in the family to make arrangements for the funeral, but, but you also are a human being um, that also needs to grieve, that needs to be in this moment.
2: I think it's a bit of triage, right? Um, so, yeah, in that in that taking up that role, you go into your dorsal vagal response, which is your fawn response of putting one foot in front of the other, and that's what we typically call being strong, which is your dorsal vagal response. And you drop down to the bottom of your polyvagal ladder. Then later, as time goes on, you try to climb up that polyvagal ladder and you go through the sympathetic nervous system responses, which is, To cry, to shake, to become emotionally, um, to become aware of your emotions, emotionally dysregulated. And I think the most important thing is to not be judgmental that either one is right or wrong. It's just what is available to you at that time. What is the situation calling for and what is available to you at that time? And not to judge yourself for either going into that problem solving mode, which was necessary. If it wasn't necessary, you wouldn't have done it. Um, Or later in the crying and just allow yourself to cry it out without judgments and without interruption and without using a solution that was uh, appropriate for Mm -hmm. the funeral process, which is being strong, dissociating, fawning, and rather allowing yourself to be in that sympathetic nervous system response long enough for your polyvagal ladder to climb all the way up. I know really Bukhile is gonna talk about grief with children later, Mm -hmm. but there's something that I always say to children in loss that I find very helpful and might be very helpful for the listeners to hear as well. Would it be okay if I shared that, Clement?
1: Yes, please, please.
2: So With children, and no matter if you're 40 or or four, when you lose your dad, you've lost your daddy, right? You lose your mom, you've lost your mommy. And what I always tell children um, when working through grief and loss is that we won't see them with our eyes or feel them with our arms anymore, but we'll always see them in our memories and in our photographs, our lovely memories of them, and we'll always feel them in our heart where they planted a love so deep and so true that it grows stronger as we grow stronger every day. And I find that that works beautifully with children in Mm. terms of helping them process and understand, but also as adults, quite comforting as well.
1: Yeah, Ginny, always always amazing having you on the show, help us through these complex um, subjects. Thank you so much for making time for us, Ginny Kaveh.